Welcome to Hotbox the Cinema. This is not episode five. Uh, I thought that we should maybe call it episode four point twenty. That's pretty good because it is a, a sort of half episode, uh, following up on our last episode about theme park cinema. Yeah, it's like a Evangelion movie. The rebuilt, the yeah. commentary track. You could put some parentheses in the title. Yeah, make it really clunky and lots of. Uh, ands and other punctuation marks reversals of meaning i guess before though we get into that it's a new year Mm -hmm. 2020 seeing clearly in 2020 how's your 2020 been so far seth um all weird i saw this there was a tweet the other day that said the first movie you saw in 2020 is like that's gonna determine your decade so what's going on and the first movie i saw this decade was richard jewell so you're going to be persecuted by the FBI. By the media. And they're going to take your media. Tupperware. Yeah. There's a bunch of journalists that act like rock stars. Maybe you'll dance to the Macarena. Yeah. My first movie of the year was Tango and Cash, which, you know, has its pleasures. Not an amazing movie. Very homoerotic. Lots of butt, both from Mr. Russell and Mr. Stallone. Mm. Um, Stallone plays like a dandy kind of like he's very concerned with his appearance and he's a stockbroker who ostensibly is a police officer as a hobby not because it's like his job is he like playing up the yuppie thing yeah yeah it's very weird like he's just wearing a, a very manicured suit the whole time hair slicked back and kurt russell is a cowboy type who has a gun that shoots out of the heel of his boot um what yeah. Does it shoot like forward or does it shoot the direction of the boot like Bayonetta? It shoots like whatever direction you point the boot. So it's like he Whoa. has to aim his foot. Doesn't Kurt Russell do drag in the movie too? Yes, he does, which he also does in Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. This sounds like a massive influence on Bayonetta, actually. It, I could have been. I mean, I know that uh, Kojima at least loves Tango and Cash. He's tweeted about Tango and Cash before. Um, I think he loves like every movie he watches though. He d- he does, but I think this one particularly because you know he's an 80s action guy but he's also a thoughtful cinephile and it was co- it was one of the co-directors was like Andre Tarkovsky's like writing partner uh, who then came to America and made Runaway Train and Tango and Cash. Whoa. Um so 
it's that vibe. Um, mm-hmm. It's also like super. There's a lot of torture, like uh, getting electrocuted, really like homo- aggressive, homoerotic torture, or like yeah, like Rambo First Blood Part Two electrocution vibes, like glistening sweaty. skin, screaming. That, okay, well that's where the Kojima loving this movie comes from because there's like extended scenes in Metal Gear Solid One where you have to like repeatedly tap while you're getting tortured and you're naked. And yeah, a lot of nude torture mostly. Yeah. There's like extended, very strenuous, like rapid tapping scenes to withstand the torture. And, but the homoeroticism. Yeah, it jumped there. out. It did jump out. So now that we're settled into the big 2020, we're going to look back at our last episode in hindsight with the 2020 vision. But we also just kind of wanted to talk a little bit more about uh, theme parks from some other different aspects that I guess didn't really come up in our initial discussion. That was already the longest episode we've recorded. Yeah, there were a lot of notes that we had that we just kind of forgot about and a lot of specific examples or movies or rides and attractions that we like didn't get into, but that maybe strengthened some of the ideas in mm-hmm. the first episode. One thing we didn't talk about at all with theme parks was uh, the way that or like theme parks we've been to experiences with those and I guess like the different types of attractions and stuff we've seen. Um when I've been to growing up in like the Southeast, you know, there's like a Disney world and a universal studios park in Florida. Um, I grew up in Georgia. So there's six flags over Georgia there. And then also there's like a County fair that would mm-hmm. come through every once in a while. And they had some rides and stuff on there. And then also it, living in Tennessee for a while, there's Dollywood and Gatlinburg and all those are based on, I guess, aside from like the traveling County fair, like all those are based on like media production companies Though the county fair did have like a Titanic thing. They had like an inflatable slide. It was like a huge just inflatable balloon where you climb up the sinking Titanic and then you like slide down it. It's uh, kind of, I don't know, it feels like a connection to the kind of disaster like live recreations uh, that we talked about a lot with early amusement parks on the last episode. Somehow we didn't mention Titanic being re-released in 3D. No, we didn't. Did like you see seven that? seven years ago. I didn't. I saw Phantom Menace being released in 3D, though, around that same year. I was, unfortunately, at that time, a 3D naysayer, and I wish that mm-hmm. I hadn't been because I really regret never being able to see Phantom Menace in 3D. But yeah. my theme park experience, I don't have a ton, honestly. Like, I think just because... I mean, my like family was not really kind of into rides and stuff and like roller coasters but also i you know i grew up in central texas and there weren't really a whole lot of very accessible big amusement parks i mean there's six flags over texas which yeah the original six flags yeah you know the the name refers to those six flags that have flown over the state of texas spain france mexico the republic of texas the confederate states of america and the united states of america um so Six Flags, a little problematic, the name there, you know, got that yeah. Confederate recognition. And that creepy old dude, too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, those commercials really fucking terrified me as a child. Um, and I think that was most of my early exposure to theme parks. But I, as a kid, visiting my grandparents in South Carolina, we once went to Carowinds, formerly known as Paramount Carowinds, which is now just like a kind of generic sort of park, I think. At the time, it had a lot of, like, Viacom-related characters, you know, Looney Tune mascots and stuff. And actually, my uh, 
I didn't really make this connection until the words were coming out of my mouth, but I think that actually my uncle probably got a lot of work from Carowinds because his day job is he makes like the suits for mascots and particularly for like theme park characters and stuff. Um, so he'll, he'll like sculpt giant heads and like basically furry suits. Um, and so I think he did a lot of stuff with Carowinds, but it's no longer owned by Paramount. It's just like uh, owned by this company, Cedar Fair. And so all of the like Snoopy and various kind of cartoon Looney Tunes related things have been replaced. Um, I didn't know that the name is like a portmanteau of Carolina and Winds. Uh, referring to the winds that blow across North Carolina and South Carolina. Just uniting the state, dissolving the border. Yeah, but it was started by this businessman named Earl Patterson Hall, who took a trip to Disneyland and dreamed of bringing these two states together. So that was the point of, that was his dream with Carowinds. I don't know if it really succeeded. I'd never heard of that place. Yeah, it was, you know, kind of a dinky park. Like there weren't really roller coasters. It was more little kid stuff. After that, I mean, like after that, my the next theme park that I went to was like the same kind of thing, but a smaller tier. Uh, in sixth grade, like my orchestra, I guess a lot of people did this with like orchestra and band where you like go play a competition or something and then you like go to a theme park after. Uh, so in sixth grade, we went to this park in Dallas called Sandy Lake, which was just like all of these rusting rides in middle in the seventh and eighth grade we got a bump up and we got to go to sea world but i wasn't really i don't know i I got motion sickness as a kid so Mm. i didn't really do a lot of ride stuff and then in high school i went to disneyland in california and then to legoland and it was just me and my mom Mm. and legoland was super honestly a super humiliating experience in what way So I had wanted, it had been my childhood dream to go to Legoland. I fucking loved Legos so much. Like I poured over the Lego catalog, Lego Club magazine, ate that shit up. And I always wanted to go to Legoland and I would like read about Legoland and stuff. And so eventually like when I was, so when I was in high school, my senior year of high school, my dad was like going on a business trip to Anaheim for some conference. And so he was like, hey, like my Boss will pay your way. So mom and Nathan come along. And so we went to Disneyland, which was Disneyland was really fun. And I just decided to go on all the rides myself and not worry about my mom. Wow. Alone. <laughs> you know, she was fine with it. She didn't want to. She's going in for. She's fine in the hidden Mickey's. Well, the thing that's great, too, about doing Disneyland by yourself is that you can go in the, like, fast pass line. There's, like, a single rider line. So you can just jump ahead of everybody. It's amazing. Um there aren't a whole lot of other places where being there by yourself gets you in no. head in some way. Most places you're punished for being single, uh, but not at, not wow. at Disneyland. Like, but Legoland, so the thing about Legoland was that I was in high school, and it had not been my dream for a long time, but I was like, you know what? I've always wanted to go. Let's go. But it's very small rides. Like, Are they made for very tiny children? Kind of. But it's also just weird as a like 18 year old or 17 year old boy to just like get on these rides yourself when like most of the people working them are probably younger than you, even at that young age. And they're all just Mm kind of looking at you like, why are you getting on? Like, why do you want to get on this like little boat ride by yourself uh, where like five year olds are going to spray water at you? It was just kind of like a a bad day. (laughs) 
so for me. One, one thing I'm interested in is that most of the theme parks we talked about are based on like media production companies and their properties they own. But Lego is a company that just like makes representations of like known characters a lot of the time, yeah. like Star Wars and Harry Potter. It, was it a lot of like rides based on like partner brands of Lego or was it all just like things made out of Lego? You know, I don't know if it's changed, but at that time it was mostly like still kind of Lego related stuff. Oh, I'm sure everything there now is like Lego movie, Lego Batman, Ninjago. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I I would not be surprised at all. Um, But it was still like sort of based on the like classic kind of Lego lines like Castle and Ninja, Western, and everything feels everything feels sort of made out of Legos, both the like non-lego stuff you know they have like big duplo blocks and or fake duplo blocks but then they have the like garden where you can see all the like creations made by the master builders like all the replica towns and stuff or like the sculpture garden which that stuff is actually really cool and worth seeing but the actual like amusement park part of it is kids stuff that reminded me of whenever like I would go to Dollywood. It was always like kind of like a mm-hmm. I've been like a couple times, but it's just a place that was like close and you know, having family in the eastern part of the state, it would be just kind of convenient to go there or you know, just being in scenic Gatlinburg, Tennessee anyway. Uh, but that place I remember being pretty underwhelmed with a lot of the rides and so much of it was just kind of like walking around, just like being immersed in Dolly Parton. Well, so actually the place was like just like this Eastern Tennessee theme park for a long time. It was originally called like it was originally called like Rebel Railroad. I mean, it's always been like kind of like a Southern Pride, like Civil War nostalgia kind of themed place. Like a lot of things in that like area in, in Gatlinburg, Tennessee can be. Yeah. Um, and like in the, I went through a couple names. It used to be called like Silver Dollar City and all that stuff before Dolly Parton bought it in the 80s because I think it was maybe going out of business and she was just had gone there a lot as a kid. So she bought it, but being like East Tennessee theme, there are some like weird rides about the whole Eastern Tennessee lifestyle. That's pretty uh, inherent to like Dolly Parton's brand and image over the years. Like there's a ride based on like being in an unregulated mine cart and like, mm-hmm. or an unregulated mine shaft and your mine cart is going crazy. And there's like a dead canary in a cage and the waiting line and all that stuff the experience like turning the awful experience of being a coal miner in Appalachia into a fun family ride. Yeah. You go on the ride, you leave, you go to golden corral. It's the Southern experience. Yeah. That whole area is just a string of little like tourist trap towns overflowing with attractions. And I mean, Dolly Parton owns a couple more in that area. Like, there's another park. She has like a water park there called Splash Country, I think. But also like she has like a dinner show in Gatlinburg called like the it's not called the Dixie Stampede anymore. I think they changed the name to just the Stampede, but it's like basically medieval times, but mm-hmm. themed around the Civil War and it has Dolly Parton's name on it. Yeah, you've got and you've got the like uh, Hatfields and McCoy dinner show, the Lumberjack Feud dinner show. Yeah, uh, the upside down house and like the tight. Also, there's a Titanic replica there too, and the Ripley's Aquarium. There's a lot of branded stuff there too, with like iconic people. Like Paula Dean had a restaurant there for a little while. Oh yeah, and then she got called out for being pretty racist to like several non-white employees many times through her career. And I'm not sure if her name is attached to it or if it's like her kids who are now celebrity chefs too, who are on it. 
It's like a Jimmy Buffett Margaritaville Island. But it's just strange that there's like this town. I went on a ghost tour and somebody said they like grew up there. Uh, and it was very strange to me to think about people like growing up and being local residents of this town yeah. that kind of only exists for like celebrities to have a little like restaurant there for tourists to go to. And it's so strange because it's just like right at the foot of the Smoky Mountains. So like as you're driving through to go have this serene experience in nature, you're just like assaulted with the complete opposite of that. Like everything is just it's so garish and in your face. The best times I've had there or in like towns like that, even if it's like a beach town without like a driving attraction other than just like the beach and being a vacation spot, I'll usually find that my favorite part is like just being like away from that whole like strip of shops and everything like that where you can buy things with the place's name on it. Yeah, I feel like there are a lot of places like that or like honestly, so many kind of natural attractions have turned into that. Like I remember a few years ago visiting my aunt and uncle who live outside Sacramento um, and we drove to Lake Tahoe and like that whole, you know, like the lake itself is very beautiful, but that whole area around it is just like Bubba Gump Shrimp, Cheesecake Factory. Um, and it's something about like I borders too, like borders between states because like Tahoe's, you know, like California, Nevada border and like so many, I feel like kind of border towns in the south like Vicksburg or Shreveport, you know, that have casinos are kind of like that. Yeah, there's like the Harris Casino in North Carolina that if you want to gamble, you have to drive up across the state line to go gamble there. Yeah, yeah, the Cherokee Casino. And But also, I mean, there's there's another uh, border attraction uh, on the Tennessee-Alabama border. There's a big fireworks store, like a huge one, that is just kind of there i think i think it's within alabama because tennessee has stricter firework laws but you can go there and get your stuff and then go about your business and just not get caught yeah i was also reminded of um by like we were just talking about tourist trap kind of attractions and also talk like looking a little bit more into the history of carowinds made me think about this but um there's this attraction on the like north carolina south carolina border called south of the border that is this like awful gaudy mexico themed um little kind of like it's not you know not quite a theme park but not quite a like motor lodge like hotel motel kind of thing um and it has this like giant metal sombrero tower that you can see on the horizon that's so fucking weird that it it exists but you sent me this article about it and like it's by the washington post and the the headline for it is really funny that's the only reason i bring back up the article yeah yeah but it's like this south carolina roadside attraction is garish tacky and un-pc but i stopped anyway yeah and the article of course like is compares it to david lynch or something but it's like so much of the history i feel like of of theme parks it's like it mimics the history of of movies like being so much the product of like exoticism and so many theme parks like recreating foreign lands or like something like that in a very Mm. tacky and often racist way i guess like some examples being like disney has their it's like Epcot. Is that the park where it's like just the tour of different kind of global biomes? Yeah. So you're kind of globe trotting yeah. and they have different themed restaurants and, and all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, 
kind of related to that, like the hidden history of Disney, I feel like the sort of like how D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation is sometimes seen as like the original sin of American cinema or like cinema generally, you know, just this like very informally influential movie and also influential in terms of like the the size of its rollout and how big of a release it got. Um, but that's also like Ku Klux Klan propaganda, um, you know, Disney's Splash Mountain uh, is based off of Song of the South, the movie that they would like everyone to forget. Yeah, that ride is strange, though, because it's actually, I didn't know this uh, until it's like researching it, but I found out it, it got called Splash Mountain. Well, they made it in the uh, in the 80s after like the movie had been re-released four times over the years i think in theaters yeah maybe I think, three times I think it, and but, i think it did get a release like in the early 80s yeah the most profitable two were the 70s and 80s um re-releases of that movie which also i mean whenever people cite that as being one of the top grossing movies of the year it came out it's because those re-releases that were more profitable much later on and through a nostalgic lens are applied to the yeah. overall box office of the movie but in the 80s they added that attraction to Disney World, and it's just strange the way... I mean, basically, they did it so they could use the song zippity doo from that that has been made over and over and over again. Won the Oscar for Best Original Song that year. I mean, remade enough to where Miley Cyrus, when she was Hannah Montana, maybe oh, 10 wow. years ago, like did a cover of the song. Buddy Holly had a cover of the song. There's all kinds of covers throughout history. Even I remember this like Disney VHS like just this very straight to video like kids thing about like animals and dogs they have like a version of Sk- zippity doo in that but the ride was based around just kind of mining and scrapping or i guess scrapping for parts the property of song of the south and trying to salvage that song that's the really profitable part of it um they're gonna make it around that but then they ended up calling it splash mountain as a namesake tie-in to the tom hanks movie splash around that time <laughs> as like a promotional tool, but then they made no reference to that after the movie came out and the ride had been established and it's kind of like a mainstay of the park at this point. Yeah. But also the ride, it like has like quotes from uncle Remus from the movie song of the South, like on the wall they have like, it's, I mean the whole thing tells a story of Br'er rabbit. One of the old, uh, stories that song of the South is based on. Or not mm-hmm. one of the stories it's based on, but one of the stories told in the in the movie. But instead of like a tar baby, it's replaced with like a pot of honey, I think. But it still has like a Br'er Rabbit story in this ride. It's very bizarre that this is just part of the core Disney brand at this point. But it yeah. is this like kind of salvage job from the property of Song of the South. I mean, that's what's like so interesting to me about the theme park adaptations of movies a lot of the time. Because... You know, people rewatch movies, but they fade away from the consciousness at a certain point, whereas a theme park ride just like stays there. So you have rides for movies that are like really old at this point and that people aren't actively watching that are still attended. Like an example that I uh, had made a note of to mention um, for the last episode, but forgot to mention is um, the like Waterworld live show. Uh, at Universal Studios, which has been going on. You know, that movie came out, what, like almost 25 years ago? And that that attraction is, like, still going and still very popular. 
at uh, Universal Studios, even though the movie is considered this like notorious bomb. And there were there are like some other examples of like rides that have been replaced, but that were around for a, a long time. Like just in looking at other theme parks and stuff, you know, like I saw that there was like a Lethal Weapon ride at Warner Brothers Movie World in Australia. Wow. Um, and just you know, just like very specific things like that, like movies that you don't think would be turned into rides, and then they yeah. just sit there forever, like after the movie fades. I remember one at Universal Studios was based on like the Brendan Fraser mummy that has now been like kind yeah. of rebooted or remade, and then I think is I assume it's just like been scrapped and then pivoted toward like the classic lineup of monster movies that Universal keeps harkening back to. One of the things that it reminds me of is the like Disney um, movies ride at Hollywood Studios in California. Uh, which is now closed, but uh, I'm actually like bummed that you know I went to Disneyland, but I didn't go to the Hollywood Studios oh. like other part of it that you have to pay separately. That was for. A, that's a wacky park, I'll tell you now. Yeah, yeah. Like, what's the deal? I just well, I just had a bad experience with it when my family went because they have a ride based on Aerosmith, and every like oh roller coaster God. cart grouping they have. They'll have like different ones going simultaneously. They just loop back and keep going. And all, each of the different ones have a different Aerosmith mm-hmm. song playing in the cart. And so the one my family got in on like the last day we were on this trip there before we drove like eight hours back to where we lived in Georgia, um, our cart had Dude Looks Like a Lady playing. <laughs> and my little brother just like sang that the whole way home <laughs> for eight hours. The movie ride is kind of. <laughs> interesting though aside from i mean well i guess the aerosmith ride to go back to that for a second is strange just to think about making a i mean we talked about dollywood as a park being based around this kind of i mean though she is like an i like as a star she's like an iconic brand i guess but it's all based around a musician essentially for some reason it works better for that than it does for like a ride just based around aerosmith but also i guess it kind of reminded me of like the the pinball machines based around different stuff like the Aerosmith ride felt like you were kind of inside an Aerosmith pinball machine. Well, the, I feel like the differences too, is that like Dolly Parton has this whole sort of mythos around like her childhood and background and stuff. And the park is like turning that into some kind of physical reality. Whereas like there's no mythology to Aerosmith. It's like literally what is the point of an Aerosmith ride? Like that experience when you're trying to like, Cause that's all, you know, that like theme park design is, it's just like this experience design, but it's like, what is the point of the Aerosmith experience? I don't know. But that, that Hollywood, uh, or I guess the movies, right. They had in the Hollywood studios park. It's strange because you basically, it's kind of like, it's a small world where you're just going through all these different dioramas, but they're yeah. all scenes from different movies. You're kind of spatializing these scenes. Like there's, I think they have like a Casablanca one where you're on the airstrip at the end of the movie and it's foggy. There's an alien one, or maybe it's aliens. No, I think it's the first alien because that movie's kind of stiller and easier to portray with like animatronics, but it's just like the strobe light, like mm-hmm. steamy alien hunting down a hiding Ripley kind of scene. It's a very strange, like looking at the just list of movies and the, like a description of the ride. Um, it's such a strange assemblage of movies because it starts off with like busby berkeley's footlight parade and goes into singing in the rain oh yeah and it's a mary poppins and then it like jumps back to like a tribute to gangster movies and it has like 
uh, Jimmy Cagney and Public Enemy. And then there's like the Western part with Clint Eastwood and John Wayne. And but like then, you know, and then, then at the end, I guess there's like the whole montage of like the history of movies. And you look at this whole list and it's like, I mean, again, it like brings you back to Birth of a Nation because that's in there. Um, but you've also got like the whole like TCM classic, like AFI top 100 movies, you know, King Kong, Sound of Music, The Jazz Singer, up yeah. to like Braveheart and The Matrix and Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. And that's just like a very weird history of movies yeah another one that i just remembered was the indiana jones live show they also have at that part in terms of taking movies and turning them into live things which also i mean kind of does remind me of the way that like movies and bands get turned into pinball machines but they just like kind of extract like the key moments the key like iconic objects and stuff like that like the indiana jones thing is basically just recreating the entire opening or Raiders of the Lost Ark where you go and he replaces the head, there's the big boulder and everything. And then it kind of mismatches different elements from the different movies of just people hunting him down. I think they have like the, like punch out with the big German mechanic on the airway and Raiders of the Lost Ark too. And so it's just kind of recreating these scenes, but with a real human doing it in front of your face. Yeah. There's like a big emphasis on the props and stuff like, having all the the iconic props and it it feels like planet hollywood or something or like fuddruckers i don't know i don't, I don't know the last time i went to a fuddrucker so i don't know if they still do this but i remember some fuddruckers used to have like kind of a movie theme and like they would have like mannequins of the blues brothers and like different old posters or like really shitty movie props I don't know, that kind of, like, experience is something that at one time feels like it's a much larger scale kind of production, but now there's such an emphasis on, like, pop-up, you know, experiences related to movies. Well, yeah, now it's kind of leaving the theme park based on classic movies, and they're starting to try to, like, I mean, almost in a way kind of, like, canonize and, and... create icons out of movies that are in pre-release or being released in like a top five media market, but they're not in main theaters yet, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I guess some examples recently uncut gems, they like made Howie blings, uh, jewel shop into a place you could walk into in New York. You could call him on the phone and talk to Adam Sandler and, and all that. You could get a picture with the Furby and post it. Yeah, I saw a bunch of people posting those and like the security camera footage as you get buzzed in. And yeah, there was also uh, a passport to Iron City Alita Battle Angel experience in Los Angeles, New York, and Austin. I'm so upset you didn't go to that. I know it was a bit pricey. I kind of wanted to. But it's like you, you like on the website, it says like explore Iron City, drink at the infamous Kansas bar. And then there's like a kind of escape room um, component to it. And like you can you can go to the motorball stadium. That reminds me of last year in uh, in Japan. They had a couple like video game themed escape rooms. Like there's a Resident mm-hmm. Evil one where you're kind of going around switching around. I mean, Resident Evil itself is a bit of like an escape room. People call it a puzzle box, like the classic style of Resident Evil where you're just yeah. kind of going through this house and finding what objects you need to put in what place to unlock the next part of the house. And there was one on Metal Gear Solid where 
I think I read that the the participants would walk around with like an iPad. I mean, kind of like like retail employees will now, where they have like the iPad with the <laughs> scanner on the back. So they walk around and they're doing like a recon mission of sneaking through the Shadow Moses base and scanning all these objects, and they got to mm-hmm. watch out for the guards. I don't know if there's like a cardboard box involved in there somewhere, but just kind of taking these these old experiences that back then everybody's like, whoa, this is, you know, there's never been anything like this before. And then kind of extracting that and making it into a a real world, I guess, physical experience. Yeah. I didn't really realize that there is actual like burgeoning subgenre of amusement park rides adapted from video games. Like this is a pretty recent thing. And a lot of it seems to be at parks that we cannot go to because they are like the huge mega parks outside of the US. But you've got like uh, Universal Studios Japan with like Mar- a Mario Kart attraction that's opening up yeah. as part of the Super Nintendo world and a Final Fantasy attraction. Did you see this is this might be podcast artwork, but did you see the leaked photo of what the urinals look like in that Nintendo world? I did not. They take like the piranha plant, the big red plant that spits fire and it's just an open mouth that you pee into. Oh my god. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, this list of games though, that like have been adapted into rides or it's very odd though, because there's stuff that you would expect like Sonic, the Hedgehog and, and the Nintendo stuff, but Gears of War laser tag makes total sense. Yeah, it does. Although that sounds awful though, because like if it were actual, an actual Gears of War laser tag, you would have to move really, really slowly. Oh yeah. And it's all about just like sticking to cover and laser tag is always just like kind of walking aimlessly. Yeah, um, there's a Raving Rabbids 3D dark ride at a French park. Classic. Um, there's a Plants vs. Zombies ride. Yeah, uh, there's a there's a, a Mass Effect one. It's a 3D simulation, which is just strange because that series is not... I mean, it has like some of like that shaky cam, lens flare kind of action flavor to it, but it's not really like a quick moving craziness kind of action thing yeah uh the angry bird stuff kind of makes me it reminds me of um there's also like a a spatial angry birds experience that i've done and it's just like the arcade game version like how they make a bunch of apps into arcade games now and like the dave and busters here i went one time and they have like this big plastic box that is like this basically this kind of like walled off space that you get on one of the short or one side of like the long stretch and you basically Mm -hmm. have a pinball thing to control the slingshot to shoot out an angry bird. But instead of having like the obstacles and the green pigs, you have to kill in the middle of this big open space, like physical objects you can destroy with the physical bird. They end up having a touch screen at the end of the big shooting space. It just makes for a very frustrating, like never really aiming properly Mm -hmm. experience, but that's kind of a weird spatial adaptation of that. Well, there's a whole, uh, gaming theme park now in dubai called hub zero which bills itself as wait let me pull this up sorry the ultimate cyber playground that's um, so crazy and the, their their slogan is live the game live it that sounds like the weird like digital hub they'd go to in ready player one where you have like your overwatch game and your races mm-hmm. and all that crazy stuff but the list of games here is very strange but also, like half of them are like Western developed games. Like there's Gears of War and Dragon Age are the the two I was thinking of when I said that. But then there's also like Resident Evil, Azura's Wrath, and Final Fantasy VII. They have like 
for Final Fantasy VII, they just have a ride made out of like the big, crazy, expensive CG movie Advent Children they made for that movie. Mm-hmm. And Asher's Wrath is kind of interesting though. It's it's credited as a 4D cinema experience, but that whole game is essentially just an interactive anime where you have button prompts to press like quick time events the whole time. But and a lot of people just credit quick time events. I mean, I don't think they're all like awful but azure's wrath is a whole game built around it but it is very like effective and involving the whole time because you're Mm -hmm. like with a button press you're controlling like these gods throwing planets and stuff it's like a very large scale kind of epic thing that's really fun to tag along to the like vip pass for hub zero is called the hacker pass whoa instead of getting on the fast track you're hacking the hacking the line in the system but also all the ride types they have listed here are really funny because there's just weird specifications that I don't understand. Like 3D Dark Ride, 3D Simulator Ride, 4D Cinema, a Dodgems Ride, Motion Simulator, Interactive 3D Trackless mm-hmm. Dark Ride, Robo Coaster. It's like all these like weird. Like, what kind is of a Robo Coaster? Varia- well, apparently that's what this this dragon age thing is, but that makes sense. Cause it's called flight of the mm-hmm. warden. So I'm assuming there's a dragon that you fly on. I guess that's like I, with the movie rides and stuff too, there is like an attempt to immerse you and put you in that experience of that movie. But it, it's very different in some ways because it feels like so much of the like movie based rides or like at least kind of what they came out of are like, about showing you like behind the scenes a little bit more, you know how like the universal studios park kind of developed out of the backlot tours, which we were talking before you were wondering, like, is that still a thing that people do? And I honestly don't know. Like, yeah, because I mean, if you think about what a studio lot used to function as in movie production, whereas now a lot of like the big blockbuster stuff is like shooting in Atlanta or Chicago a little bit. And then in a blue room for the rest of it, yeah, it's like there's nothing to... What do you see? I don't know. Yeah, unless you're just like walking through the previs booth or something or you have like some TVs where they're kind of like rendering everything coarsely that you can walk through. And so much... So many of the rides too, like you were the, your description of the great movies ride at Disney, it's like it's still basically a movie, but it's just like it's happening in front of you, you know, like... It's tangible. Yeah. It's, but it's you can not, stick your hand. It's not theater, though. <laughs> yeah, it's some weird something in between. But then the, like, these game, you know, escape room experiences you're talking about and things like that, are, there's, like, such an emphasis on, like, making you the avatar, like, making a literal kind of, like, physical version of some kind of VR experience. Yeah, but it's strange, though. I've had moments in my life where, like, things feel like I'm actually inside of a video game. And by that, I mean just, like, it feels like events are scripted and they're, like, actually, like, happening in sync with the things that I'm doing. So, like, I walk past a certain thing Mm -hmm. and then these people, like, come into view. There's, like, one time I went to work at this bad old job. Probably not the most, like, legal operation, but I was working at a game store. And the first day I went in, there was a police... It was in the shopping center, like, strip thing connected to a Kroger with a bunch of stores in it. It was in a corner. So I start walking toward this, mm-hmm. like, corner of the thing, and there's a police car parked by the corner. I just didn't know what, why they were parked there, if this, like, cop was... What store the cop was in. But then as I'm walking up, from both sides of my peripheral, two other cop cars, like, pull up, and then the police officers walk into the <laughs> place that I'm walking into, and it felt like a Call of Duty level or something like that, <laughs> where all this stuff is happening directly around the frame of your TV, and it's, like, mm-hmm. made in this way where... 
everything is like scripted around what you're doing. It's funny whenever people talk about, I guess, like being the protagonist or being the avatar. And that's like kind of a concept people are starting to learn from video games. And that comes up in other media now. Like there's this new Ryan Reynolds movie about him being an NPC in like a Grand Theft Auto online game where people are just blowing people up with rocket launchers all all the time. And it's about his like radicalization or awakening and becoming his own protagonist. And then also... NPC Joker. Oh, God. That also, though, it just feels like... I don't know, not to go on a tangent, but, like, since the NPC has become kind of a, like, 4chan meme thing, oh, like, yeah. it just it just feels like that movie is going to have the same, like, discourse, incel bait discourse that yeah. Joker did or something. People will probably compare it to, like, The Matrix. Probably, Maybe, yeah. Like, he Rick and up. red-pilled. But also, I mean, when people start have started recently joking, or at least I've seen it recently, like, on Twitter, people talking about, like, the being the protagonist of Twitter which is basically just like the person that everybody else on Twitter is talking about for the day. Yeah. Being the center of the discourse. Uh, I guess in talking about video games and the way this relates to like theme park experiences and kind of centering the, the visitor and everything like that, something that also I got reminded of, it's kind of a theme park game is Epic Mickey, the, the Mm -hmm. game for the Nintendo Wii with sequels on a bunch of other platforms. I think it was on the Wii the U. edgy Disney. Yeah, edgy Disney. It's, it's the, the gritty Disney. But that game's kind of interesting, though, because, well, the whole thing is you kind of, like, going through, not the theme park version of the Magic Kingdom, but, like, whatever the fictional version is, which I feel like I've never seen the fictional version of what the real Magic Kingdom is. Yeah, I think I always assumed that was just, like, invented with Disneyland. I thought so, too, but... Apparently it's real, but the whole game, it starts off with like Mickey waking up from like a dream or something, or maybe dreaming. And he walks over to this mirror and it's like, I've talked about the matrix like two times in this episode, but there's like a matrix moment that happens where he like touches the mirror and then it like covers his whole body. And then he ends up on the other side of it and he sees like the wizard wearing the Fantasia hat, like painting the magic kingdom and main street USA and all these like fictional Disney locations that are in the theme parks. And then he like goes away and Mickey accidentally spills like paint thinner on everything. And that like creates this basically opens up a portal to this like other world where all these canceled and pivoted away from an unsuccessful, like Disney cartoons from the steamboat Willie kind of era. Those like early Disney shorts come back and then the villain of the game is this character named oswald the lucky rabbit and i found out (laughs) that actually that character was made so long ago that it was actually through just like different purchases and rights transfers and things it ended up being owned by universal studios or i guess universal pictures but the movie ended up or the game ended up being made because warren specter pitched it to bob Iger. warren specter the classic game designer made like deus ex thief all these things, Mm -hmm. the immersive sim, people call it. But he pitched this game to Ubisoft and then to Bob Iger, who wasn't the CEO or the president of Disney yet. In 2003, it was contingent on getting the rights for this character. And in 2006, they ended up trading Universal uh, for this character by using one of ABC's like football announcers, Al Michaels, who wanted to move over to NBC (laughs) for their football broadcasts. They just, like, traded a football commentator to get this old Disney cartoon back to make Epic Mickey. Oh, my God. But, yeah, and then the whole game is just you going around, kind of cleaning up, touching up the brand image, out with the old and unsuccessful. And then as you go through the game, you're going through, like, all these places that are kind of, like, represented or in real life. 
in the parks and everything. But then there are levels where you'll go to like basically big like acid trash like dumpster ponds and you have all these like bonded and melted like Disney memorabilia like lunch boxes and action figures and packaging and basically kind of like memorabilia and detritus as the platforms you have to move on to get to this level. Mm-hmm. It's just very strange. The whole thing is just like very centered around this one classic period of the Disney output. But then it's also kind of about the way it's used in like the theme park now and everything. Well, the, I think the thing that's interesting about that and about Epic Mickey being about basically like Disney trying to clean up and gentrify its existing old brand image is that like, because I don't know, Disney is a, as a corporation as and god like we just keep fucking talking about disney don't we like i guess it's just in the water and like consuming everything so it's hard not to but we just keep touching on it every episode it seems like i mean they produced like 80 percent of the top grossing movies of this last year i mean it's it's a little bit unavoidable yeah it is for sure but like that's the problem that they run into with their parks is just that you know one of the things that we keep talking about is that like permanence of theme parks so they, you know, run into, like, making a, an attraction based off of a movie that's not that successful, like something like Atlantis. Like, there was an Atlantis underwater submarine ride, which then got reworked into a Finding Nemo yeah. uh, ride. And I also have been thinking a lot about, like, when I went to Disneyland, it was one of the last years that they had Captain EO, the Michael Jackson, like, Disneyland exclusive movie, which... It's kind of funny, like, I don't know, as a precursor to the, like, Netflix original, like, you had this movie with Michael Jackson in it directed by Francis Ford Coppola and produced by George Lucas that you had to go to Disneyland to see. But it's just this, like, 30-minute long movie that's kind of like Return of the Jedi mixed with, like, Labyrinth or, like, some Muppets movie, like, mixed with Thriller and Flashdance or something. Um, where, yeah. like, it's just Michael Jackson piloting a ship in space, like, hanging out with some off-brand Muppets, and then, like, Angelica Houston shows up as an evil space queen, and they have a dance battle. Um, and it was directed during Coppola's, like, desperate uh, for hire period when he had, like been bankrupted two or three times over by that point and was kind of like willing to do everything willing to do anything and everything to pay the bills so i remember seeing that and they had actually taken it down in like the late 90s early 2000s but they brought it back after michael jackson died and i went in like i guess 2012 or 2013 and so it was already a couple years past that at that point so like nobody was there and it was like the least attended part of the park that i was at the whole day and it was just in this kind of like auditorium that felt like cold and grimy and kind of forgotten yeah but it's just like you know the theme park just has this it's just they have the rides have to run every day and that's just like the cultural memory of that thing fades but you have families who are just like what's this and they just stumble into captain eo and like then they go on with their day yeah i forgot about that the only like real way i knew about it is because they made like a gag on like the simpsons or one of those like adult cartoon comedy shows they had some like joke about it i think the joke was that michael jackson was actually he like jumps out of the screen and like kidnaps somebody's child and that's the of course yeah of course but like that's the i think the the problem that you know we we've talked about some of these like super kind of mega theme parks that are emerging in like dubai and china 
and that is the problem that like all of these places run into is like how do you make a permanent or semi-permanent experience about a movie that or, or game you know as we're seeing now that like might get forgotten yeah it's weird to see the way that like the like spatial and kind of like the bigger crazy experience of that has been distributed to things like maybe escape rooms or I mean, maybe just music festivals as like kind of a yeah. more like spatial experience. Music is maybe a bit more fit to that than than a movie or a video game because both of those require you to sit down for a really long amount of time. Even the just like gestation that it kind of takes to build a theme park interest inevitably wanes in that time. Like I was thinking about, uh, they announced like a year or two ago that they were that Lionsgate was going to build this sort of theme park in Times Square. And they were going to have like a Mad Men diner and like a Hunger Games roller coaster, indoor roller coaster and like a John Wick experience. And they scrapped that just because it was like, why? Um, But they did open a like indoor park um, in Guangdong province in China with like a lot of the same attractions. So they have like, you know, like they have a Hunger Games ride and a Twilight ride, which like those have maybe some enduring recognizability, but they have a Gods of Egypt ride. Gods of Egypt, like that, like bleeding pixel CGI kind of thing from like 2014. Yeah, like the movie that uh, uh, I think Alex Proyas directed it of Dark City and um, mm. Knowing, you know, classic, some classic films right yeah. there, classic special effects. Oh, iRobot 2, also he did. But uh, yeah, the movie that like everybody got mad at because um, Gerard Butler was supposed to be egyptian in it uh but just like insane special effects extravaganza which like i would go to a ride of that but it's just like very strange to have that tied in and they also have like a now you see me attraction um which who remembers those movies now you see me somebody actually was talking to me the other day about how they were just like obsessed and they stayed up till three in the morning watching those like last month, somebody <laughs> was just going off at me about Now You See Me. We need to send them to the um, Now You See Me experience. Yeah. I, the Lionsgate Entertainment World. Yeah, on location reporting, on location podcasting. <laughs> There's also this, uh, which like another intersection, I feel like, between amusement parks and like movie theaters. There was a, well, I guess it's still uh, open, um, but... It changed ownership recently, but this uh, giant like studio facility called the Oriental Movie Metropolis, which was f- owned and opened by um, the Wanda Group, which is this corporation that like in- owns theme parks and all kinds of things. But they also are a majority shareholder in AMC theaters, even though there's been talk that they're going to pull out and sell some of their shares. Um, they also are a major stakeholder in Legendary Entertainment, you know, who do like Christopher Nolan's movies and um, the Jurassic World movies and the like recent Godzilla reboot. So they opened this like giant theme park slash film studio, um, I guess as like a response to Disneyland Shanghai. The CEO of the company said that they were going to unleash a pack of Chinese tigers to take down the Disney dragon. So this place was going to have like it, it, or it does, but um, Wanda like sold it, I guess, this year. But it has like, in addition to malls and hotels and indoor theme parks and a also a hospital, there is a celebrity wax museum, an IMAX research lab, 
IMAX Research Lab? Yeah, a, a laboratory. Where they just, they're just researching, like, how to make it bigger. I guess. Bigger and better, baby. Go big or go home. Speaking of that, the, they also have Asia's largest movie theaters um, in this facility. Gotcha. And they also have the world's largest indoor stage. And I don't know if they actually did, but there's an article from 2016 that says that they were going to film parts of Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and Pacific Rim Uprising at this facility. But as with so many of these things, it's like a bridge too far, and it seems to have like really hit Wanda hard because this was just like a, such a huge facility um, yeah. and undertaking. I mean, it's kind of strange. We were talking about how like theme parks are kind of scaling back as like a, maybe an outmoded type of attraction for just anybody to get into if they're not one of the major kind of companies. It's also kind of weird to see places like malls start like scaling back and not yeah. putting as many attractions in there. Last time we talked about like malls having like the big bungee jumping stuff and all that, and malls have movie theaters in them too. But like last week, uh, me and one of our mutual friends were talking about how there's actually like a great opportunity for malls to like have like touch screen maps because mall maps are so bad. And if you could be able to say, I want to go mm -hmm. to this store specifically and it could like wayfind through the mall and tell you exactly how to get there. Or maybe even have like digital weight pads underneath like the tile that people walk on so they can tell where the heavy traffic is and everything. But that's just like such mm -hmm. an undertaking to make the experience of a mall better for like diminishing crowds. Yeah, you reminded me of two things uh, when you said that. First, I had totally forgotten this, but one of my friends growing up, his dad was like a perennial entrepreneur. Like, I guess at that time, startup wasn't really a word, but I guess he would have been like a startup guy now. But he just constantly kind of failed mm -hmm. at his ventures. And one of his companies that he started, like, installed um, plasma screen displays. The plasma. In malls. And so I remember, like, when my, the shitty mall in my hometown, Post Oak Mall, like, got all of these screens that just, like, showed basically nothing. Like, they were just an advertisement for themselves. Yeah. Well, it's weird how, like, fast food restaurants now have, like, screen menus that usually just make yeah. you looking at a menu worse because they'll, like, flip to another menu while you're investigating what you want to get. Or they'll just have, like, basically GIFs of, like, this is what the food looks like in motion, even though you're here and you're going to buy it anyway. Well, like, the problem with just the mall generally, but also, like, that kind of screen, like, just maxing out on the screens is that there's always, they can never find enough content to fill it with to, like, make it feel normal, you know what I mean? Like, it always, like, there's always a point where, like, you're, like, the mall... D display that's like advertising stores or like advertising food like you're talking about it just like you know it starts over like it runs out of things or they always have like really frequent ads about how to get your ad on there yeah yeah exactly or they have like really like bullshit trivia mm. or like news headlines or something like that and it's the same thing with like the space of a mall like now, especially because so many malls are kind of dying or are like in areas where other businesses have 
failed and left like it just you're just so aware of the space and yeah. you know we were talking about that dying mall that we went to on the last episode but i also remembered that in the past couple of years like before the mall really started to close that there was like a brief period of time where somebody was like booking diy shows in the food court like just having a local band like every friday yeah. and saturday because it was like what the fuck else are you going to do with this enormous space but also thinking about the the communal aspect of a mall that no longer is facilitated by people shopping because people just shop for everything online now and you can usually find exactly what you're looking for from somebody if it's not an organized retailer on like one of the digital marketplaces that we use now um but i mean seeing a mall is like a communal space and seeing that kind of revive without as many stores and everything. And it is also something that's happened around here. Then the library system here in Nashville actually like bought a closed mall in the southeastern mm-hmm. part of the city. And now it's kind of a revived community center. Well, they didn't buy the whole mall, but they've opened up a library branch in the mall. There's also a gym yeah. in the mall and everything. And there's a little park outside of it, too, for kids with a playground. And it's it's a pretty lively place proportional to the community mm-hmm. around it. So. I don't know. Seeing something like that, I think, is really interesting and maybe a less depressing way forward as we talk about yeah. like the always depressing image and feeling of just being in an empty mall. Well, I was going to say um, this is like, you know, you were just offering a hopeful vision of like how this kind of capitalist hell space can repurposed to something good. Or how the husk of it won't just get plowed down and have like apartments put in it or something. Yeah, um, like a bad version of that is there was this like tweet going around that people were dunking on from some like Alabama tourism Twitter, Yeah, like go see Alabama. That was like this awful video about a form, like a closed abandoned school that has been like repurposed into a brewery and like arcade barcade with a speakeasy behind a wall of lockers yeah actually i saw something before that video even ran around of that place i think it's called like straight to tap but i saw that they had a new year's event at their brewery and tasting room where it was like a roaring 20s themed new year's event so it's just like so heavily nostalgic for that that period and that vision of American life. Given this is just, this is, I get it. This is kind of like a, a New Year's event that's themed around just the number that things are turning. But I think it yeah. kind of falls into that general pattern. I know. I mean, it totally feels like a very, you know, I saw people posting on Facebook and stuff. Like, thankfully, nobody that I am actively talking to or friends with posting like they're like Gatsby themed New Year's outfit or whatever i mean being on tumblr when that boz lerman adaptation like i don't think can ever be topped by anything because people were (laughs) just eating it up back then but just like i don't know of all places like you know in this craft brewery placed in a like school that probably closed down you know because of budget cuts or you know the the complete erosion of like our social safety net it's like to have a party fetishizing the 20s that's just like time of complete economic disparity and income inequality as like that's just really makes it plain, I think, uh, what that kind of venture is about. Also, it's weird to see a closed down school get repurposed for something like that, because most of the time whenever we see closed down schools and being repurposed in the last couple of years, a lot of it has been through the, the image of like the zombie apocalypse, oh, like yeah. speculation 
like the games like The Last of Us having like a level where you go through an overgrown school and everything and mm-hmm. but you're shooting people and all that or shooting infected they're not even zombies in that game I don't know that it's just weird to see like the ways that abandoned buildings get used uh, for different purposes now. Yeah, it's just every time that those spaces get emptied out, there's like a struggle to find the new activity that binds us together and and justifies that extreme use of space and like Well, I mean, you see it as like places like Walmart and like the biggest building in a small town in the south yeah. or in the midwest or something like that as walmart like closes down because the town isn't profitable enough but all the mom and pop stores in the town have closed down too you even yeah. see places like there's a town i think in kansas that their walmart left all their grocery stores left because they weren't making money and this typically red running district actually opened up a city government owned grocery store but Whoa. just dancing around the word socialist the whole time they did it <laughs> yeah. but i read an article about it from earlier this year and it was actually like the government literally had to step in because the corporations that raised the whole economy there also then just like left it and the whole mm-hmm. scaffolding that it had built collapsed and they had nothing to do it makes me think about um, one of the like i think like it's not a theme park movie but it is a movie that's set in a theme park, um, this movie, the world by Zha Zhenka, um, the Chinese filmmaker. And it's about like people who work at, um, uh, the theme park has been closed for a long time and I don't remember the name of it, but it's like, basically it's a theme park of the world. Like it has all of these sort of like recreations of, you know, the Eiffel tower and like different landmarks, um, around the world and whatnot. And so this movie is like filmed there and follows people who work there and like who work at the stage shows as performers and dancers or like people who work as attendants there. And Zhajinka's movies like do a very good job at I like articulating the like extremes of of capital, um, which I think is just like particular to kind of like China in China, like the kind of more rural regions where you have like side by side billionaires and Maseratis and then mule drawn carriages still uh, on riding the same streets. But like his movies always kind of like focus a lot of the time on these like hollowed out skeletons of skyscrapers that like are planned for the future and have yet to be built. And it just shows this kind of like extreme disparity in this like planned future versus the kind of current reality. Um, But in the world, it's like particularly interesting because, you know, it's this closed amusement park trying to uh, recreate the rest of the world, which just like ups the surrealism, I guess. And just that like surreal feeling of just the like uncanniness, I guess, of all of those sorts of of any theme park that tries to like recreate another part of the world. It just kind of. It's like going to, it's like Las Vegas or something, you know, it's just like this giant illusion that really makes plain certain contradictions in capitalism or whatever. You talking about that reminded me of the movie Hannah, like 2012 or something, but it ends in an abandoned theme park. Yeah. They're just like walking on the tracks of a roller coaster and everything. It's like a very cold and like chilling vision because the whole thing is about just like a secret government program kidnapping this girl and raising her. And yeah. She's out in the world as a natural born or maybe not natural born, but like a bread killer. Then it goes to this like just desolate abandoned theme park by the end of it. There are those kind of like interesting metaphorical uses of theme parks a little bit. If you look at that movie where this girl is basically raised in a lab and brought up to be a very deadly person. 
her whole reality is like constructed around her by this government agency that has these ulterior motives a little bit like gemini man as well and i think some of the thematic connections Mm -hmm. ring true in different ways for them for a Gemini man, but ending a movie like that in an abandoned theme park where it is this construction of reality that actually failed in the way that this government program probably failed too. Damn. I was going to say like a sort of another version of that, like metaphor theme park as metaphor is um, Johnny Knoxville's movie action point from last year or no, I guess two years ago now, cause it's 2020 now, which was based off of a real park in New Jersey called action park, which was notorious for a long time for like, basically like taking the kind of brakes off of rides and like making them really unsafe and Johnny Knoxville's like whole thing in that movie is like it doesn't hit it as hard as it as I was kind of expecting but there is this sort of like reactionary bristle at like PC culture you know of like oh back in my day we just let kids do whatever and like let them ride in the car without seat belts and let them do all this crazy shit at the amusement park put kids in harm's way and oh, it's yeah. like has this kind of let like, the 8 year old drive the car Yeah, you know, like back in my day, you know, like boys were boys and like we let them be dirty and mess around in the mud, Uh, which is, I guess, just sort of like a substitute for his probably um, nostalgia for a day when like his body was in better condition and it was easier for him to like make money off of it doing insane stunts and self-harm. Yeah, Or when he was probably more willing and younger to just like throw himself into all kinds of situations that he knows he's limited against at this point. So, I mean, another like example of that same tendency to like use the theme park as a metaphor is maybe a shittier one. Um, But that movie escape from tomorrow from a couple years ago that made a lot of noise because, you know, it was filmed illegally like in Disneyland and is about like the dark seedy underbelly of the magic kingdom. It's about this family vacation, and then the dad gets, like, hypnotized or mesmerized by this one, like, ride, and then... It just becomes the dream, becomes a nightmare. Yeah, I watched it back when it came out, and it was just bad. I feel like it might be easier to make now with iPhones and stuff, Mm -hmm. movies like Tangerine that are big in, like, award circuits and stuff that are made on iPhones. I think you could maybe get away with it. I mean, funny you mentioned Tangerine because... uh... Sean Baker's movie after that, like, uses the same sort of Disneyland as metaphor that Escape from Tomorrow does, um, The Florida Project, which is like, I didn't see it, but it's all about, you know, these poor kids growing up, like, in the shadow of the Magic Kingdom or some Disneyland-like park. But that seems to be, like, what Disneyland and, like, theme parks more generally represents in, like, the imagination it's just like pure fantasy, like pure constructed, like whatever the opposite of reality is. That's what Disneyland represents. Just like manufactured, uh, sterilized unreality. It's strange though, whenever, so we talked about a lot of the rides at, at these different places kind of becoming inspiration for movies and stuff. The new one, the rock is in jungle cruise. Um, we already talked about like song of the South being made into splash mountain, but another one is Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, which is very, it's a very strange, it's just, I don't know, it's very odd that that movie was like so huge just based off of a ride. The original ride is like structured a little bit like the Hollywood 
like studios like movie ride where you're just going through different kind of scenes and dioramas but then somehow these scenes yeah. and dioramas rather than be t- being taken from movies they actually like inspired a movie that then influenced the scenes and the characters and things that are are in the uh the park ride yeah and you know like after the movie came out they like altered the ride to be more like the movie and like you know because jack sparrow is like not a character in the ride originally but also the movies themselves over the course of them started integrating their inspirations as just part of the text like i remember when the movies were coming out people were like oh did you know he's actually based on keith richards that's where that's where johnny depp gets his inspiration yeah. and then keith richards stars in the movie as like jack sparrow's dad and then paul mccartney was in like the fifth one or whatever i didn't see it i totally forgot about that so they just brought in the british invasion into the pirates movies yeah, and it and it felt like as those movies went along, like I th- I think a lot of what people liked about the first one was a sort of like oh it's such a throwback swashbuckler adventure movie. You got the romance, you got the comedy. It's such a classic time at the movies. But as the movies go on in the series, like they get more and more aggressively like theme park cinema. It becomes more about the special effects. Like I remember effects for Davy Jones um, and dead man's chest being like, I think they might have won an Oscar for that. um, But at the very least, like I remember seeing a lot of kind of talk about it of just like, Whoa, like, you know, they created this totally motion captured face um, and how big a deal that was at that time. Yeah. I think it's funny though, comparing, I mean, saying they get more theme parking as they go along, but also comparing it to something that came out around the same time about ship combat, Master and Commander, which itself was like a big, <laughs> like, like you go to the the Bose sound system store and that's their demonstration movie. Yeah. So it itself is a bit in the way that I talked about Earthquake on the last episode being this thing that's all about, you know, the how the sound works in the movie and how, you know, it feels real because you hear the cannonballs and all that stuff seeing those two come out around the same time was, was a strange pairing. The first PG-13 movie I ever saw, Master and Commander. They should make a Banjo-Kazooie type game where you play as Master and Commander. And those are the two characters. You know, that was a franchise non-starter that, like, for years after that, it's always been like, oh, is there going to be another Master and Commander? And, like, you know, some people ask Russell Crowe, and he's like, maybe, uh... You know, if Jeez. all those, if ever if the timing works out or something like that. That's also a funny thing to compare to like, this is getting back to Disney again, but Avatar was another franchise that was always just like, as soon as the first one came out and was breaking like records about box office weekends and stays in theaters and stuff. And itself was a demonstration of some very new pioneering production technology and 3D presentation, um, which now has kind of influenced the way like all video game cutscenes are made in a motion capture studio with yeah, like di- yeah. digital digital visualization cameras and stuff. That was always a franchise that people were like, oh well, you know, in the next two years there's going to be another Avatar, and like people have been saying that since like the first one came out. And now there's like James Cameron just has this looming five movie plan or something, and they have the Disney Park open now, but there's still not a second Avatar movie. That should have been the first sign of trouble, you know, when there was that when there was the Avatar Park opening. That was when people should have known that the Disney Fox marriage was going to happen. It's just strange because it seems like they're trying to build the whole multimedia theme park experience as they go and then all be finished up yeah, and yeah, complete yeah. in time for the, the big streamlined multi-movie string to come out maybe. 
where before this, I mean, the movie came out, was successful, and maybe five to ten years later, you have this fully formed ride. Yeah, it's very strange because it felt like the theme park, the uh, you know, the Pandora experience was like trying to make up for the Avatar sequel not coming out sooner. It's just weird to like see that, but it's just we- you know, even though the first Avatar had already come out, it's weird to see that before the like franchise comes. You know, like mm. the Star Wars park that just opens comes as the new trilogy is ending. Yeah, I mean that was something that. I feel like pioneered by the rollout of the Matrix franchise after the first movie where you had this Mm -hmm. multimedia and transmedia experience of stories being told in the Enter the Matrix video game that tells the story of Naomi, or um, I think it's Niobe is the name of the character, but Jada Pinkett Smith's character, um, Mm -hmm. and that coming out alongside the Animatrix, which is this compilation of different short films that fill color in different areas of the Matrix universe. Um, you have the Matrix Online game that like told canon story of like Morpheus dying and things, and then you had the Matrix sequels being produced in tandem and then shot all at once. First one is yeah. released and the second one's released a year later, and so I feel like that is something that is now being maybe approached differently, especially now that you have streaming services available to put out new shows and content that fill in different areas of a thing, but. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's also something that that the Avatar franchise to be is is kind of attempting. With the Matrix, you know, it's like even though a lot of after the first movie, a lot of people turned their backs on the the franchise or like were not into the 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 sequels and didn't engage with the games. Yeah, I don't know. It just feels like that somehow maybe it's just because of the like thematic resonance of those movies and how that sort of links up with the sort of multimedia transmedia experience like you're talking about but there's just an authenticity there that every other attempt at that sort of conglomeration just feels so hollow and so with something like avatar even though i'm very interested in seeing like what james cameron does it just feels like this constantly like playing catch up or something like trying to solve the puzzle before you've like even looked at the individual pieces or something like that it's strange to compare like the matrix like transmedia rollout and transmedia storytelling um to something like avatar where there's a theme park component because also i cannot imagine them trying to like spatialize and make rides out of the matrix you know like how do you make a ride out of getting like a needle stuck in the back of your head without actually harming anybody and then also then the rides would just be like really cool shootouts which i'm sure that they don't want to make yeah i mean they could do the like the zion experience or or something the flight of the nebuchadnezzar where you're like yeah, a ship exactly. gunner and all that stuff. But then that's essentially like the Star Trek bridge crew type of the experience. Yeah. I, and well, that's also the thing you like make it. That's a good point about how like a matrix ride, you know, would essentially be like a Star Trek ride or something else, because it really makes you realize how many movies have like the same kind of removable parts that can just be swapped out because so many theme park rides are just like, uh, previous movie theme park rides, you know, like yeah. one closes down and they like turn it into something else. Like, you know, I mentioned earlier Atlantis into finding Nemo and like the T2 3d became something else. 
Oh, it was replaced by Despicable Me, Minion Mayhem. So, like, all of these things are just kind of like, it's like how a lot of movie genres, you know, like westerns and samurai movies are structurally sometimes the same. It's just the, like, specific iconography that's different. I was, you're probably going to have to edit out, like, some furious typing sounds from me. That is okay. Because I just remember this one thing, but if we're talking about, like, theme parks being assemblages not just of different ideas from like a movie or an attraction or something like that or a place that you're trying to capture but also i mean of the actual mechanical components that make it up i forgot in talking about splash mountain that actually that ride started off as this ride called america sings that ended up getting closed down because one of the disneyland teenage employees uh was crushed to death and so they like couldn't use the ride name anymore so they ended up integrating parts of it into Splash Mountain, and so that mm-hmm. also maybe explains a little bit of just the strange salvaging of components from Song of the South into a ride that was made in the 1980s after people have been protesting that property since before it came out. Wait, no, the Despicable Me Minion Mayhem is replaced T23D um, in California, but at Universal Studios Florida, T23D is going to be replaced by the Bourne Stunt Tacular. Wow. Jason Bourne stunt show. As we start to wind down, this is like a good thing to bring it back to, but something that I wanted to mention, but I had forgotten until now that this reminds me of is like, that's kind of fucked up when you think about it. Like the minions are placing the, uh, the Terminator. No, not that, but like Jason Bourne, just like Jason Bourne becoming a like stunt show at a theme park because, you know, like those movies are about this go- this government agent like coping with his PTSD and like his trauma, like a Hannah type thing, you know, like his whole reality is manufactured and he's kind of like dealing with that. Also, those movies are also, I guess, a bit theme parky if that we're just going to keep calling yeah, anything yeah. that's like actiony theme parky. But in terms of like Paul Greengrass's signature, like the crazy shaky cam the intensified continuity editing like we talked about i think in the last episode um and also those movies are always they always have like ambient police sirens and there's just like constant unrest the whole movie a little bit like uncut gems yeah 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 for sure the chaos cinema effect um but it reminds me of the like advert that they have at regal movie theaters before the trailers with this like fake roller coaster where it's like welcome to regal and then the roller coaster goes out onto the track and there's the exploding popcorn in your face and the like river of coke yeah and then it goes into the movie theater and it's like enjoy the show and you know that plays before the previews so it's not quite as jarring, but there are still sometimes I've been at the movies. I remember thinking this when I went to see 12 Years a Slave with my parents. I was like, I don't feel like this roller coaster yeah. uh, intro is maybe setting the mood quite right. I it, it was the same it was the same feeling I got when uh I wasn't seeing Zero Dark Thirty, but like the weekend it came out, I remember going to see mm. something else at a Carmike theater where you bought your ticket and concessions at the same booth. Mm. So like the dude in front of me was just some like real like bald, muscular Southern dude like, and he was like one ticket for Zero Dark Thirty and a big and like the biggest tub you got, and he just got this like huge tub of popcorn while he so was like going to go watch Pratt. some. You watch some black site torture, uh, and I don't know. I guess that's just the like uncomfortable thing about the like 
the the theme park dialectic is um, just trying to turn like trauma into into like a positive affect and like a good sensation. Yeah, we uh, this is a much lighter note, but in terms of like theater pre real stuff, I was just reminded of when I went to go see Richard Jewell, uh, and before mm-hmm. it, they had like all those commercials and everything. And they had a TikTok commercial, which was really funny to see a Clint Eastwood respond or a Clint Eastwood audience watching what TikTok is and then explaining to each other that they don't know. Yeah. Um, but then uh, they also had this commercial for Chevrolet that had like a truck and it was pulling a trailer. And then the trailer is actually just like a big, the big like MPA green tile, like oh my god, motion picture preview. And it says there's always a truck <laughs> before the trailer. But the thing though is that it's not actually a se- oh my God. it's not actually a seamless experience into the like actual green tile because then they have like the theater like has this like turn off your phones the previews are about to start yeah, yeah. make sure you go get your candy kind of thing before they do the big roller coaster or whatever they had that thing that breaks up the actual like the seamless transition that Chevy wanted to have. There's always a truck before the trailer. Mm-hmm. And then Chevrolet told me to enjoy Richard Jewell. So. I guess we should uh, start to wind it down. There was one point I wanted to make before we got out of here. Yeah, closed up um, shop. But I want to make sure there's nothing else that you want to get to first. No, I think I'm, I'm fine to not talk about a theme park for a while. After yeah, this. yeah, me too. Even if we don't want to talk about it anymore, theme park cinema seems like it will be... Perhaps here an, to enduring, an enduring theme of cinema from here on out. Um, because l- last night at the Golden Globes, there was a little joke from Mr. Ricky Gervais, Richard Richard Gervaird. Um, he said, Martin Scorsese, the greatest living director, made the news for his controversial comments about the Marvel franchise. He said they're not real cinema and they remind him of theme parks. I agree, although I don't know what he's doing hanging around at theme parks He's not big enough to go on the rides. He's tiny. And then it like cut to Martin Scorsese and he mouthed like, it's true at the camera or something like that. I like him reiterating at the very end of this whole thing, just saying he's tiny in case you didn't catch that. One thing actually did come up as we were talking about this. I was thinking about, you were talking about theme park movies here to stay. I was like, is anything, I was just thinking about the the movie theater lobby experience. And I forgot that all the movie theaters that have like little bars in them now have like themed drinks for all the movies. Have like a knives out drink. I wonder if uh, underwater the new Kristen Stewart movie comes out on Friday, and I'm sure they probably won't have a drink themed after that. But I'd buy it if they did. Every theater just trying to be Alamo Draft House. You can buy Korean barbecue tacos at your Regal Theater now. Yeah, chicken and waffles. AMC loves the chicken and waffles. They love a flatbread too. Like flatbread is not to me. A normal thing. I don't know. Flatbread is like fake. It's like, just why is it not a pizza? What the fuck is a flatbread? I don't know. But also that's a really, I just don't understand like eating a meal in a movie theater when it's not just like little tactile pieces like popcorn or candy or something. But also I was reminded, I saw a second movie in 2020. I went to go see Uncut Gems for a second time. And the only place showing it around here, uh, or at least one of the places close that me and my friend went to, was this theater that is like one of the bigger AMCs and they have the dine-in service 
and I was kind of hoping we uh-huh. would get like servers walking around and taking orders in the middle of uncut gyms because I feel like that would just add to the chaos. Oh yeah, and the unrest. Yeah, but they didn't do it. We just had the little theater like all the way at the very end of the back hallway. Yeah, there's now in Knoxville that um, newish Cinnabar dine-in theater um, that replaced an old favorite, the Regal Westtown Mall Theater, where they had a like pastel fake movie town in the lobby and just like all this like unnecessary space was devoted yeah. to this like fake city and it was so beautiful. They I loved had a, it, honestly. an arcade inside, which they don't really have yeah. as many arcades anymore just because i guess movie theaters aren't the big hangout spot as much these days yeah no i mean they had at the downtown knoxville regal they had the like fast and furious arcade cabinet and then they replaced it with the bar um the times square amc still has a couple of arcade cabinets but it's in this very awkward place where like you exit the theater and then you have to come down multiple sets of escalators and the arcade cabinets are like tucked away next to the like second flight of escalators. So you're just like, nobody's ever playing those games except for one time I was like leaving like something really crowded and like a bunch of people were coming out and there was just this one dude playing the Terminator Salvation arcade cabinet. Yeah. And we all had to like scoot by him because there was like not enough room to walk by because there was like not enough room to actually play the arcade games. Um, yeah. Most of the theaters around me just have like that Terminator Salvation game that for some reason yeah. still gets made. And then they have like the weird modern aliens shooter. There's like a Jurassic Park game sometimes, and then they'll just yeah. have like a bunch of claw games and like Silent Scope, which is a huge full sniper rifle. You're aiming the down. West Ham Mall one had it had some classics. It had the like old the like '90s special edition Star Wars original trilogy cabinet and the like Lost World Jurassic Park um, game from the '90s. Some good shit. R.I.P. Yeah. I don't know. I wonder what they did with all those games. Guess they just auctioned them off, probably, or something. Well, I suppose that's probably it. Closing down. If you want to leave us a, a voicemail, a message to get possibly played on the podcast in the the future, I just recorded a a message for this voicemail today. That'll you'll be greeted by whenever you call it. Uh, be called a hotbox hotline. That's six one five five nine two one zero zero three, and that's also going to be in the show notes in the description for this episode. And I don't believe that I had actually made, had I made the Twitter the time we recorded the last episode? I can't remember. I assume. But either way, we have a Twitter now. Yeah. 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 um, At Hotbox the Cinema on Twitter. And of course, if you don't feel like uh, saying something, leaving your voice uh, to be played on air, you can always send us a nice little email at hotboxthecinema at gmail.com as well. And we'll, you know, read it out and respond. Yeah. And we're also, you know, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes. Those are the hubs. Yep. The listening places, the digital platforms were on them. And then we're also both on Twitter. Uh, I'm at ASAP sunscreen. And where are you, Nathan? I am at Trillmore girls. Yep. So you could find us there, follow us, block us, whatever you, you know, everybody uses Twitter differently. (laughs) some some people just like block the hosts of the podcast they listen to that's how they do it Mm, i only want to hear the thoughts i don't want to actually read them i listened to your whole second episode about theme park cinema and i was just like fuck you guys i don't want to have anything 
don't want to hear anything about roller coasters from you ever again. Get out of yeah. my life. Because you can only unsubscribe from a podcast, but you can't block a podcast. So sometimes blocking the host is a little bit better. Report this podcast, please. Yep. Anyways, until next time, keep on token.
That's all me. Stay true. That's all me. No help. That's all me. All me for real. Came up. That's all me. Stay true. That's all me. No help. That's all me. All me for real. I got 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one I got 
like I got trust issues I'm sorry for the people I pushed out I'm the type to have a bulletproof condom And still gotta pull out But that's just me and I ain't perfect I ain't a saint but I am worth it If it's one thing, I am worth it Niggas still hating but it ain't working Little bitch Mumble style, 